0: Welcome to Days of Roar, the Detroit Tigers podcast brought to you by the Detroit Free Press. My name is Mark Gorash. I am here with a Detroit Lions fan and Detroit Tigers beat writer Evan Petzold. Ev, quite the day in Detroit sports lore. Where were you and where did you watch all this uh, fun Detroit stuff today?
1: Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I watched the game and my in-laws, so got a chance to hang out with Savannah's parents. And we had a bunch of appetizers out there that we made and, and cooked up. And we ate a lot of food and then obviously watched some really good football too. It's cool because I get to really live through other people, right? I get to live through my dad a little bit. He's been around a lot longer than I have been, and he's seen a lot more Lions losing seasons than I have. And same thing with Savannah's dad. So it's fun kind of watching them experience this as I'm experiencing it as well, knowing that like, hey, look, these guys have been through it, through it. You know, I've experienced a little bit of that. Just watching Lions, you know, throughout my lifetime. But, you know, it's generations before me have, have been through the struggle and are now, you know, reaping the rewards. So it's fun all the way around.
0: Well, it's not every day when you get to go to the NFC title game. Last time, 1991. I think this is a much better team than last time. Let's hope they fare a lot better than they did when they went to Washington. I'm not sure they allowed them on the plane after that game. But excited to see what happens next week. Think they got a great shot at going to the Super Bowl. I'm not even sure I've ever uttered those words in my 60-plus years of watching Lions football. We have Dan Kaplan to discuss the Bailey Sports Amazon deal and explain to everybody how they're going to be able to watch games this summer. And then we have my baseball brothers coming on later from Tiger Minor League Report. We're going to go to Dan right now. I'd like to welcome Daniel Kaplan, sports business reporter, one of the best in the United States, 21 years at Sports Business Journal. A stint at The Athletic, currently writes for Awful Announcing and his own sub stack. Had a busy week, Daniel, I'm sure, with the partnership between uh, Diamond
2: Sports and Amazon. How you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm also going to the Super Bowl on behalf of front office sports. So that's another thing I've got coming up. It's, it's look, hopefully you'll see the lions there. Never know. <laughs> well, I'll probably be able to see you there if that's the case.
1: <laughs> yeah. We'll see about that. So a hey, Daniel diamond sports group, which operates Valley sports, Detroit, home of the Detroit Tigers, Detroit Red Wings and the Detroit Pistons on Bally sports, Detroit, along with other regional sports networks across the three leagues has announced this partnership with Amazon. The partnership with Amazon investing 115 million will put local games on prime video and allow Diamond Sports Group to escape bankruptcy. What what does all this mean, right? I mean, first and foremost, like how surprising was this announcement? What does it mean for local fans in this area and how they're going to be able to watch the
2: Tigers, the Red Wings and the Pistons moving forward? Well, it was very surprising uh, to take the listeners back. Diamond declared bankruptcy in March of 2023. It was a victim of cord cutting. The number of subscribers it was able to Get fees from through the cable system had dropped dramatically, and they had tried for years to get the streaming rights from Major League Baseball, and they had year to year deals with the NBA and NHL for those teams, but they finally hit a financial wall and declared bankruptcy. And as the bankruptcy moved along, it became quite apparent that there was no that they were going to just try to exit bankruptcy with a one year. Deal with NBA, NHL, and Major League Baseball, and close up shop after 2024. And so there was a court hearing last week that was coming up, and at the and suddenly at the court hearing, Diamond pulled out a rabbit out of its hat. They had this Amazon deal. Amazon was investing money. The majority of the creditors were on board to reorganize. And I mean, as as you mentioned, games would appear on will will appear on Prime Prime Video channels. So that's. That, that, that was a complete U-turn of 180. And it was It was a big surprise. So,
0: you know, essentially, if you are in the Bailey sports viewing area, pretty much for 2024, nothing's going to change. If you want to stream, this is something that's going to affect Tiger, you know, affect people that like to watch Tigers that are outside the Bailey Sports Detroit market. So essentially, the Tigers are continuing their partnership with Bailey Sports Detroit, which Diamond owned. They agreed to an extension back in 2021. Do we have any idea how much money the Tigers are going to receive for
2: 2024
0: and how
2: long the deal is going to be in effect? Well, it will be in effect now as, as long as it as long as the terms say it will. I, I don't know the the term of the deal that was agreed to in the extension in 2021. But whereas we thought all these deals were coming to an end at the close of the 2024 season, that apparently is no longer the case. Now, Major League Baseball, which has bought Diamond precipitously during this bankruptcy process, they've reserved judgment on this situation. They're not commenting. Their lawyer at the hearing, in which this was announced and the Diamond people and the creditors were celebrating, said it may not be time yet to celebrate it's no secret that Major League Baseball has wanted to create its own local media portal, something the local version of mlb.tv. And that's one of the reasons Diamond and that Major League Baseball have been at loggerheads. We'll see what happens. We'll see if Major League Baseball gives up that dream and Bally's continues to be the regional sports channel of most of the teams here of these 11 teams. It's still a bit of a mess. So, Daniel, you know, there's an existing
0: deal or at least in 2023 and prior, Bailey Sports Detroit had streaming rights outside of their market for all the Tiger games. So I'm going to assume that those people that have watched the Tiger games streaming them are going to be able to find them on this new Amazon channel, and you'll be able to watch what you used to watch on your Bailey Sports Detroit app on this new version of, you know, Amazon's channel for uh, Major League Baseball, the five
2: teams are going to have left. That's correct. The five teams that have streaming deals with Valley Sports, and there's six six of the ones that run on linear TV don't have streaming rights, but the Tigers are among those five. It appears that they will transition to Amazon video channels, which is where you can choose to buy a channel, whether it's Max or Showtime or what have you. Among those channels will be now these regional sports networks that Amazon and Ballys have this agreement on. And one of those regional sports channels will be the Detroit one. And there you'll find that if your sports teams there. The pricing on that is not determined, but I would expect it would be somewhere in the range of 15 $20 a month. For sure. Okay. So, can you walk me through the overall situation in baseball right now? Because
1: like you had said before, I thought... MLB wanted to gain control, of the streaming rights for every team in the league and kind of create this entire monopoly. But now it's all over the place. Like some teams don't have contracts. Some teams like the Tigers have their streaming rights wrapped up in Diamond. Other teams are a part of Diamond with TV rights, but they don't have the streaming rights wrapped up in Diamond. Other teams like the Los Angeles Dodgers, Chicago Cubs, New York Yankees have their own regional sports networks. So could MLB go into business with Amazon or... Is there some beef between the two sides? Like, Where are we kind of at as a whole right now? It seems like everything's all over the place.
2: Where does this end up? It's a poorly kept secret, if you can even call it that, that Diamond and Major League Baseball don't get along. The commissioner of baseball, Bob Manfred, has warred with the heads of Diamond Sports Group and their parent company, Sinclair. It's because they both want the same thing, which is streaming rights to Major League Baseball teams. Major League Baseball has created a local media business unit and this was the unit that got behind the San Diego Padres and Arizona Diamondbacks when they were cast aside by Diamond Sports Group last summer with little notice. And it was, it, that was the infrastructure in place to make sure those games stayed on the air. And it's that unit that wants more and more rights. So right now, some of your listeners may be familiar with MLB.TV. These are the out-of-market rights. What MLB wants to do is do the same thing, but for in-market rights, so that if you're in Detroit, you go to MLB.tv and you go to the, the local tab and you pick the teams you want to, team you want to watch. It's hard to see that being a reality if Bally's is staying in business and wants the streaming rights and has the Amazon platform, which would obviously be very convenient for many fans. But you're right. Even if you go be outside the Bally's Universe of, of the eleven baseball teams. That's still what nineteen twenty teams that aren't in, in the streaming universe. So some have regional sports channels that they own. Some have other deals. Some right now don't have deals at all, like the Colorado Rockies.
0: So I mean, Major League Baseball has been historically pretty savvy. Uh, you know, from a business standpoint, I mean, you know, you have M- MLB Network. You had the stuff that they sold to disney before they've been you know pretty forward thinking historically so i i kind of think that they will have a game plan about how to deal with all of this plus you know my question is is now that they're transitioning to this at least for the 2024 season do we have any idea people always complain about they're in a weird location there's blackouts there's weird blackouts Have they discussed at all if blackouts are going to go away, if they're going to maintain themselves in an existing sense like they
2: are from 2023? Have they addressed any of that? Well, Major League Baseball, with its local media initiative, that was one of the issues they wanted to address was to get rid of blackouts, which is a plague among out-of-market baseball fans. Right now, given the emergence of a legitimate Valley's option post-2024, I don't know if that issue gets solved right away, especially given the disharmony between baseball and ballies. Does that change with Amazon's entrance? Because you know it's no secret that in sports, sports teams and leagues want to be in business with Amazon. So does that change if they're interacting with Amazon rather than ballies? That's a question. We'll see what happens. But in terms of local blackouts, if the teams had all gone to Major League Baseball, Major League Baseball could, could with one just one swoop, get rid of blackouts. But now, that doesn't seem to be where it's heading. Okay, let me ask you one question there, and I'm going to pivot completely.
1: I remember back in October of 2018, the Illich family, which owns the Tigers and the Red Wings, announced that it was exploring the creation of a new regional sports network. Here's an excerpt from the press release. Quote, The extensive exploratory process will begin immediately and no deadline has been set for completion, end quote. Now that was more than five years ago. I'm curious, Dan, do you think creating a new RSN in the current climate of the RSN business would be a wise financial decision in this market, right? Trying to do something like what we've seen the Dodgers do or the Cubs do or the Yankees do. Could the Tigers maybe try to make that happen under Eilich Holdings, is, is that
2: wise at this point? Or are we in a spot where maybe that's n- not a good idea anymore? Well, one of the problems with going out on your own, if you're a major league baseball team or a hockey team or an NBA team, is that you're paying yourself your own rights fee. Right, The rights fees that Bally's and other original sports channels have paid have been the honey for these teams. It's what infuses them, allows them to go out and sign players and you know, whatnot. The concern with Bally's going bankrupt was that they were not going to keep up the rights fees. They generally have kept up the rights fees. They are negotiating with a handful of the 11 teams to try to reduce what they pay in 2024. Illich probably made a wise decision not to form an RSN in 2018. Bally's bought their RSNs from Disney in 2019, which by the way, Major League Baseball was losing bidder there. So they've been fighting for these RSNs since 2019. And of course, cord cutting accelerated. It felt the the lapro the economy of the cable system imploded. So, if you're looking to form an RSN today, it would be tough. It would be tough because you don't. If the ecosystem continues to implode, there's just not there's just not enough there's just not enough subscribers to go around. Because cable
0: isn't going to subsidize it anymore like it used to. That's what you're saying. With the advent of streaming and and the loss of cable viewers to streaming, the cable companies just can't afford to subsidize these channels and these teams the way they used to.
2: It's a classic cable bundle. You have 100 channels and and there's a fee for each one of them, whether they're watched or not. And so sports is... Just ridden a wave off of that for the last twenty, thirty years. That's come. That's about come to an end. Ten years ago, eleven years ago, the number of ca- uh, cable homes was about a hundred million. It's now at about seventy million and, and still declining. You, we all know the stories of kids who are in their teens and twenties and ne- never had, never had a cable subscription. That's just growing and growing. So when you twenty, fifteen years ago, when you started an RSN, you would have say. 10 million subscribers that you, in your system, and you got a fee from every one of them, whether they, whether those consumers watch the games or not. Now, if you go to streaming, they have to choose to, to buy your streaming subscription. It's a different ballgame. Now you can put the games on over the air and a number of teams are doing that, like the Arizona Diamondbacks and the Utah Jazz, and you will get a lot more viewers. And there's no doubt about that, but you don't get the same rights fee from that if you're the team trying to manage that downturn is going to be one of the dynamics to watch in professional sports over the next couple of years. That's definitely interesting, and we're definitely going to be
1: watching for it. Daniel, thanks for joining us and helping us digest the current state of the RSN business. We'd love to have you back on the podcast at some point in the future and dedicate a full show to the business side of sports. Can we try to maybe make that happen, steal you away a little bit more? Yeah, that'd be great. How do the
2: Tigers look for this year?
0: They look like they could be better than the terrible last seven years and uh we're we're optimistic that maybe we'll see some good things this year. Time well, will tell. Well you got the lines. Indeed we Thank do. Thank goodness. Hey, all right. Hey thanks for joining us. We look forward to having you on again. Daniel, thanks for taking time. Okay. Daniel Kaplan, great job trying to sort out what's going on with Bailey Sports Detroit and everybody's capacity to be able to watch tiger games this year we have two more guests two of my baseball brothers Rahilio castillo and chris brown from tiger minor league report but before we discuss the minor leagues with them when we come back we're going to take a break first I'd like to welcome two of my favorite baseball guys, guys I go to baseball games with, two of my good buddies, Rogelio Castillo and Chris Brown from Tiger Minor League Report, a place where lots of people love to look at Tiger's minor leaguers. They just came out with their top 30 list. They have a pod almost every week. My boys, what's up? Hey, fellas, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. This is awesome. Not the first podcast we've done together, is it? No, I think the goal is to keep this one under an hour.
3: <laughs> I remember the first time I actually heard Mark on a podcast ever was on Chris Brown's old podcast way back in 2015. So,
4: Boy, Bad yeah. Hop Radio.
3: Bad Hop Radio with your son, Jordan. So yeah. that's how that's how I found out about Chris. So that's
0: how long it goes back. It's a long time ago. All right, so... You guys came out with a top thirty list, and be you know Baseball America, Baseball Prospectus have both come out with their lists of their top hundred or one hundred and one in the last week, and the Tigers are extremely well represented. So you guys get to you guys frequently go to West Michigan and Erie. I know you've also, Rod, Raj for sure, has gotten a chance to go down to Lakeland. So you're two of the few guys that see these guys in person. So we thought it'd be a great time to have you on to discuss what your perspective is when you see these guys in person. You talk to the coaching staff. You've spoken to Ryan Garko. Let's start with your number one guy. That's Colt Keith. Good chance he's going to play second base. You've been watching him for a few years. Raj, why don't you kick it off and tell us what your thoughts are uh, about Cole Keith? I mean, one of the—I think—the biggest thing for me was stood out to me early
3: on, even before he was injured last, when before he went on the injury list and then came back with a vengeance, was his ability to look for a good pitch early on. I mean, this was something that was way when we saw him at West Michigan, his plate recognition already was showing, and he balked up, then he. Pull himself back down and all he just thinks baseball all the time. He is what ultimately a baseball rat. And some of the balls we saw him hit last year, I remember there was a series in Columbus where he went out and got the ball in the traffic and we did a whole sound effect thing to it. And he was above average at every level he was at in terms of exit velocity at Erie at Toledo. And I think the biggest, t- the, we've had him number one, for because of his, what he's done at his age and we haven't seen a tiger prospect, not even Riley green come out of high school with a vengeance like Cole Keefe has, And so I think if you're looking at him, a lot of people still think he's going to be projected at third, but he is, I think he's going to have a good shot of making his team on opening day. That's how he doesn't, to me, he doesn't have left much. He has nothing left to prove at Toledo whatsoever.
4: Chris, what's your thought? I go back and forth um, between Colt Keith and Riley Green as, as the two best Tigers hitting prospects I've seen in the last few decades. Uh, it's, it's kind of, you know, pick your poison there. I, I think Riley Green actually probably hits the ball slightly harder, more consistently, but Colt Keith strikes out less and is going to hit the ball in the air more often. And with both guys, you just you, you see this kind of advanced approach to the game where they will, they will take that early count single to left field if it's going to drive in a run or they'll work the count and, and get ahead and, and turn on something inside and, and try to launch. And it's just really impressive to see, as Raj said, you know, Cole Keith just keeps hitting and hitting and, and he keeps doing it at every level. And he'll have a, a little bit of a lull when he starts and then he takes off. And uh, yeah, he, he's, you know, I, I imagine that big league pitching is going to eat him up a little bit in the first couple months of the season, but it would be kind of surprising to me if he's not one of the five best hitters on the team by September.
1: Hands down, no question about it. I agree with you, Chris. And just to chime in on this as well, like some inside info for you guys. Like I've talked to Cole Keith recently. Here's a teaser for an upcoming story. He says he's ready for his MLB debut. Probably no surprise, but like, look, when he told me that, I got the sense, look, this is a kid who says, I do not want to go back to Triple A Toledo. I have no reason to be there. That's the way that he talks about being ready for his big league debut. I expect him to win the second base job. I give him a 95% chance of winning it. One, he's really damn good. Two, he's confident and ready. And three, there's the prospect promotion incentive, right? The Tigers can get a draft pick if he wins A.O. Rookie of the Year. One of the rules is that he's going to have to, you know, get a full year of service time in the process of winning Rookie of the Year for the Tigers to get that draft pick. One year of service time, so basically that means he's either going to break camp with the team or be called up, you know, before that two-week period. At that point, you just put him on the opening day roster, right? Like, that's pretty obvious. And, you know, you're going to want to get him as many at-bats as possible if you want to cash in for a draft pick. But yeah, look, the guy crushes everything. Ninety point four mile per hour exit velocity. We might talked about the approach, right? Ten point four percent walk rate. Only a twenty one percent strikeout rate. Got a great contact rate. Makes contact in the zone as well. All around, like there's no complaints about Cole Keith whatsoever. This is a guy who does damage and he hits for average too. The only thing that I would say that I'm very interested to see is like once he gets to the big league level, how does he handle changeups and splitters? Those are the two pitches that I figured that I kind of noticed through looking at the data and then just watching a little bit of the film. That he struggled with, but I love the fact that he does not chase sliders.
3: I'll be interested to see what the change ups, but I, I think he's pretty set at this point. Yeah, and there's another pitch too. You make up a good point, Evan, that he struggles with sometimes is but he adjusted to it early on was a lot of teams were trying to jam him up inside on fastballs, and then he would start it all of a sudden out of nowhere, just started elevating himself and making contact and crushing the ball. I mean, we've had him at number one since November of twenty twenty two. I mean that's how adamant I was early on. Chris and I, like I said, it, it was just because his raw ability just to make those adjustments, and he did not struggle too much after they started elevating the fastball on him. And so I think he does win the job outright. I, I've never again. Just it's no offense to Riley Green or anything, but just the lack of strikeouts, but the pitch recognition skill set since day one has been been there. And I've 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 re- like just. Put my flag out there really early about it. And I didn't care because that that's how good
0: to me he's been. All right. Let's, you know, obviously the big question about Cole Keith is his defense. I know you guys have seen him play defense a few times. I'm not sure you got a chance to see him play second base. Did you see him play second base? He didn't play that much at Erie, but he did play some. I saw him play a little bit at second base at Toledo.
3: And Chris was one of the first to notice when he was playing third. How his arm, because he talked when he talked about this last year, he worked with Aaron, Alan Trammell on his footwork in Arizona. He was trying to get back into the swing of things at third, but we noticed that he kind of wasn't whipping the ball over the same way like he did before. And so I th- that was wise of the Tigers to put him at second. He's serviceable, he makes some routine plays, and I think he might surprise you a little bit with his range. But honestly, I, I think his footwork and his his ability to just to get the ball over the first base and present yourself as a solid second baseman I think he's fine.
4: We we actually caught him playing second base a little bit 2 years ago in West Michigan and and there oh, is. you can right. go back and you can go back and search some of our video if you want and there's some there's some fun plays of him going up the middle and doing you know the corner that kind of uh, 180 turn and throw to first base to get a guy out. Yeah, I mean I don't think he's a gold glover or anything like that but I think he'll be just fine. I think he's the type to He's a gamer, and then, like Evan said, he's really confident. When we talked to him about third base, he was like, "I want to be a Gold Glover." I was like, all right, well, cool. But so, yeah, I mean, I think he's going to bust his ass to to be a serviceable big league second baseman, and and I think he'll do it. To remind everybody, if you ever
0: want to see highlights about any of the players in the Tigers' farm system that we're going to discuss, and probably quite a few we're not going to discuss, just go to Tigers Minor League Report on YouTube and. There's just more video on players than you could possibly have time to watch almost. So if you want to get a good look at all kinds of things, Cole Keith, good place to go do it. Let's talk a little bit about the number two player on your list and some speculation that he'll spend some time in the major leagues this year. Really come on, especially late in the year and in the fall, Jackson Job. I'm curious if you guys got to see any Job starts in person. So Chris and I went for his
3: first start back at West Michigan this year, and we had a holy you know what moment when we both were looking at what he was able to do right away. And there was a even when this was against the Fort Wayne Tin Caps, the contact he did allow was just stuff that guys were able to turn on relatively quickly. But Job after that was just it was just a different night and day. He wasn't nibbling, he was attacking. And then just seeing the spin rate, we had pictures of spin rate from our gun going, it was just 3,000, 3,000, and just, but with consistency. And, and then it, he was able to do things with his fastball shape, looked a lot different than it did the previous year. He wasn't just, he it just seemed like he had a better plan of attack. And that carried all the way till we watched his first start in Erie and against a really good Richmond team, no less. He went out there and we thought that maybe perhaps he would be on the postseason roster for the Seawolves. Cause he was that good. I mean, he, he looked like a natural out there. And I, I think that the biggest difference is what he's been able to do with his pitching, his pitch shape wise and his command, his command is night and day compared to what we saw the year before.
0: He added a change too. That's really changed the entire focus of his arsenal. So it's, it's an exciting thing to see. Chris, Chris, what, what's your thoughts?
4: Yeah, I, I was just going to say it's uh upper echelon big league stuff. This is like the pure stuff is like Zach Wheeler, Garrett Cole, like like holy crap stuff. It's, yeah, he added the cutter. Like you said, that gives him a fourth distinct pitch in terms of velocity and movement. And the changeup, we saw flashes of the changeup in 22. And the changeup just jumped up at least one grade last year. It was an outstanding pitch for him down the stretch. He's got the crazy slider. The fastball is 96 to 98. Uh, It's it's just crazy stuff. You you just got to get him to the big leagues and get him healthy. That's the big question mark for me is, is he threw a total of 80 innings last year between the minors and the AFL, 20 starts. I can't imagine they're going to bring him more than 120 this year. So you're, you're, how are you going to figure that out? Are you going to give him 30 in Erie, 30 in Toledo, 60 in Detroit? You know, would that be best for the Tigers for, to have him go through his growing pains if they're trying to make a run for the division? I don't know. But I think that they're they're probably going to want him in the opening day rotation in 2025. So that might be the goal this year is to figure out how to get him ready for that.
1: I completely agree with you, Chris on, on that, right? 2025 has got to be the target date, And if he gets up sooner, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, who really knows So that's all going to play out. The Tigers also, they might not need him. They do have a surplus of starting pitchers. If you look up and down their list, we're going to talk about some of them in a little bit. I'm um, sure. But like, there's so many guys that can pitch. They went out and they got a Jack Flaherty and they went out and they got a Kenta Maeda. They have Casey Mize coming back. We'll see how all that stuff holds up. But I think for now I'm excited to see how he develops with more time in Erie and then hopefully getting that bump to Toledo as well. But, and Chris, you mentioned it, the fastball and, in, you know, Raj too, right? The fastball shape is way different. In 2022, this guy was throwing the fastball at like 94, 95 with like 16, 17 inches of vert. And then obviously the end zone whiff rate was about 17%. Now he's sitting, you know, 97 with, you know, around 18 inches of, of vert. And then you know, the end zone whiff rate has gone way up. It's gone up from, you know, 17% to now about 26%. That's an insane difference for a guy to be able to miss some bats in the zone. And sure, command plays a part in that. So yeah, sure, maybe I'm a little bit worried about the fastball getting hit in the zone at the highest level once he gets up to the big leagues. But if you can throw that cutter in the zone and he figures out the right, you know, mix for how often to use that pitch, and then he's able to tunnel with the changeup down. Like, I do think that there are a lot of things that are going to get hitters off the fastball and allow the fastball to be a little bit more successful but that jump that the fastball took, I think, is is pretty
3: impressive. And that's – I mean, I, we hope, to me, it's just similar to what we see with Ty Man, which we'll get to, too. He – against lefties, night and day difference from last year. And that's because of able to use that fastball break because I thought that last year guys were able to still pull their hands in and hit, hit, hit
0: him pretty hard on the left side. But night and day difference. All right. Well, that's two pretty exciting – Young players that both could make a huge impact to the team this year. Don't know how much you guys got a chance to see Clark or McGonagall this year. Obviously, most of their playing time came, you know, in the GCL in Lakeland in 107 degree heat. But, you know, obviously, two other guys that are pretty exciting that are on your list. I did notice that you guys, different than a lot of lists, had. Parker Meadows, number five, and I did some checking today just to remind myself, but I think Parker Meadows still maintained his rookie status. Another player that has the possibility of being a rookie of the year. We don't really think about it that way, but you guys got to see a lot of Parker Meadows over the last four years. I'm curious about your thoughts about him.
3: I think Parker Meadows might be one of the better defensive outfielders in all the the Tigers organization because he's like a gazelle out there. I mean, when he left West Michigan to go to Erie last year, there was a significant difference drop off in the defense. And when it's the same thing, he covers so much ground. He's so fast. But the working with his coach, the offseason, picking up where his foot, just doing the little footwork thing, able to generate versus when we first saw him in 2019. He was on our first interviews. And he was when Chris asked about bunting to get on, it's a different player altogether and he is put together in just terms of just extra base power and quickness on the base pass, but also pitch recognition too. something that we was kind of not really talked about. And I think it was Jerry or Chris that talked about how towards the end of September, again, this I know September numbers are always kind of misleading a little bit, but he was able to not swing at those bad, some of the bad pitches he struggled with before. So, his batting eye got better, and I think for the Tigers, they have the luxury of keeping Riley Green in left or just kind of off his field a little bit because you want Riley Green healthy, obviously, and I think with Parker Meadows in center field, that that it allows you to have that luxury because he covers so much ground.
4: Yeah, you know, I, I think I may be higher on Parker Meadows than just about anybody, which is odd because, yeah, we were there right into those first two, three years when it was a, a huge struggle, but. His floor is just so high. That's, that's what has me, you know, I think I had him fourth in my top 10. If he goes out and plays defense the way he did last year, it hits 230. He's like a 2-3 war player just on that. And if he adds 15 bombs and 20 steals, then you got, you got something. And I think he might hit better than 230. I, I think the one interesting thing about him is that he, he just doesn't swing. He doesn't swing as much. He's not swinging and missing much. He swung and missed less than Colt Keith in the minors last year, less than Jace Young. He just doesn't swing as much. And now, you know, maybe he's not reading the pitches as well, or maybe he knows his swing and knows that he can't get to these other pitches. But I would like to see him swing more, just swing a little bit more because he's got juice in the bat. And, you know, he, he's fast enough that he can leg out plenty of, you know, ground balls in the infield or, you know, try to with a double. So, I yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see what he can do this year. Uh, we'll see. Uh, it's I know they're, they're, there's not a universal belief in his hit tool, but I think – I think he can get close to average offensively. And with that defense, he's going to be very valuable for them. All right. Lastly,
0: in the top five, you got Jace Young. You guys have seen him probably more than anyone. You saw him quite a bit at West Michigan. You saw him go from having an okay sporadic year to catching fire the last, say, 65 games between there and getting promoted to Erie. Tell us what you saw, what you thought of the glove thought of the arm and thought of the bat. Well, let me, let me start with the glove because I, I know he prides himself on having a really
3: good glove and, and he won obviously one Midwestern player of the year award at second base. And I, I, the glove to me has gotten, it's a solid glove. I don't know where this, Scott scouting report, we're seeing that he's got the stone hands or the range, but he makes, we see him make some really good plays. It's going back to when he first started West Michigan, but I think the biggest, Thing that I saw last year, when he or when he got to Erie, was his ability to at the plate be more disciplined at the plate and just hit the ball with just line not only line drive power of course but the excuse me not only just fly you know getting that fly ball rate up but really just pounding the ball hard just line drives exit velocity was always up in the upper nineties into a hundred we we got some access from some of the data in Erie and. I really think that he could make the transition to third. I think he has a range for it. I don't, again, I don't see he's, he's adequate. I understand why people might be apprehensive, but based off his footwork a little bit, I think sometimes even when he gets out of the box a little, bit, he could go a little quicker, but to me, what he did in Erie last coming up there and he had better than he did at West Michigan and splits were just outstanding. And I think that, Tiger fans should be excited for a guy like Joe, like, excuse me, like Jay Young that can really, I think, be a difference maker in the lineup. Cause I was kind of skeptical, but then last year I felt that he made a step forward. And even with when teams try to adjust to him, where he was, he was starting to make adjustments too, where teams before were going slider away and he was, he was kind of swinging. He had, but then he fixed it up and started hitting mistakes constantly. And that was something that I noticed in the last month of the season and really helped Erie win the, win the championship last year.
4: Yep. For me, Young is kind of another, he's, he's one of those prospects for me that I actually, I, I, it, was, it was a really bad first impression for me. And second impression, honestly, you know, we went and saw him in 22 after the draft and he just, he wasn't hitting the ball hard. It was a lot of lazy fly balls to left field. And then in the first couple months of last year, I, I was down there and watching him getting beat in the zone with like 93-mile-an-hour fastballs, no, nothing special. But then he really he adjusted, and, and a couple months later, he's pulling 97 out of the park. So I, I was really impressed with that final stretch, and he seems to have mastered that kind of pull-heavy, fly-ball-heavy approach that we see occasionally in the, in the major leagues. And, and you know I was, did some research a while back, and there are only four or five players in the big leagues who hit the ball in the air to the pull field as much as him, and it was Isak Paredes. Kyle Schwarber, Max Muncie, and Cal Raleigh, I think. And those all got, you know, they averaged like thirty two home runs last year. So I think the power is gonna translate to the big leagues given his approach. I'm still not totally sold on the bat to ball skills and I I don't know what to make of the the transition to third base. I mean it was all of like five games in the AFL. I he he does have really good hands. It's it's he's not gonna make a lot, you know. A, a lot of fumbles or anything like that. I think the arm is kind of average. Uh, there was a the, the coach out in the AFL was talking about how strong his arm was, that he could be a pitcher or something like that. But I don't know if he's just trying to get promoted or something. Uh, <laughs> but I've never seen it look that strong. But maybe, you know, I, I don't know. I was watching through for second base. So maybe I didn't really see him uh, air it out. But yeah, I mean, he, he's a little bit lower for me. Like I said, I had, I had him fifth in the system behind Meadows just because I think Meadows offers the higher floor. I, I, I don't know if, if Young doesn't hit. I'm not really sure what he is.
1: That's beautiful. I completely agree with you on that. Like, and I love your guys' insight on this too, because even coming through the data, and I again I like to compare every player with Cole Keith because I think Cole Keith is great. But when you look at, you know, the contact rate from Jace Young and the end zone contact rate, just not as good. Not all there yet, in my opinion, you know, offensively. But to hear you guys say what you're saying about, you know, the transition to Erie and some of the improvements that he made, I, I think that's really impressive and and good to know. I also got a chance to see him in the fall league. So I did get to see him play, you know, third base for a few games. And Again, it's a few games, but like I wasn't completely blown away with this guy at third base. Like, I do think the arm is probably average. As you said, Chris, I'm not really sure about the range. And also, like the fact that the Tigers moved Jace Young to third base because Cole Keith is their second baseman, I think that tells you everything you need to know about the player in general, to be honest, and where they probably see both of those players. And sure, timeline plays into that, no doubt. But like, again, Cole Keith's gonna play second base, he's gonna be their second baseman, right? Like, if Jace Young's gonna make it to Detroit, he's gonna make it as a third baseman, regardless of where the defense is at. And that's a problem I think the Tigers have up and down the board is I think they have a ton of, like, first basemen and DHs. Like, that's what they have. If you look around their lineup, there's a ton of guys that seem like they'd be great for, like, corner outfield, pray the ball doesn't get hit to them, DH or first base. And I think Jace Young kind of falls into that category a little bit if he's not playing second base. That's where I'm at with him. But that but that's just my opinion and kind of where I'm at. I can totally be proven wrong, and and I hope he proves me wrong.
3: <laughs> and, you know, you Evan, I mean, that's... You bring up a good point because you have Bigby and Malloy who are in the same profile. So the Tigers have actually somewhat of a good problem, depending on how you want to look at it, of those kind of players, because other teams could use that if they wanted to, per se, trade or what have you. But, you know, the the emergence of Bigby, too, is based off some of the bad ball data, too. Again, there's so many, so many first base DH right fielder types you can carry, though, so.
0: All right, let's let's discuss a few players that are beyond the top five. Obviously, one is a huge favorite of my partner Evan Petzold, which is Justin Henry Malloy. I also want to touch on Keiter, a couple of pitching prospects, Kyder Montero, Sawyer Gibson Long, Wilmer Flores, and Madden. You know, all four of those guys seem to be, you know, knocking on the door, and typically teams use thirty pitchers a season, those four guys have a very good chance, along I think with Tyler Madison, of seeing time in the big leagues this year. So tell us what you know about, you know, some of the pitchers plus Jay hen and you know, I'd be interested in your perspective about Jay Hen. You've seen him about as much as anybody.
3: So it was interesting in when when Sky Harris said that back in August that he would see Malloy more often get some time Playing the playing in the outfield, and he ended up playing a lot more third towards the end of the season. Which kind of was it, it was always interesting to me. I think we saw a grade where his arm is fifty five, and, and but then it's we've seen it firsthand where it kind of reminded me of how Christian Stewart was in the outfield. It, it the arm just doesn't seem to have the same range, and again, he's adequate at third, but he, again, he does the, he does a really good job of pitch recognition, which is something. And the batted ball bat to ball skills I think are great, however i I worry about his defense because i if you put him out on left field, he could be serviceable, but I, I, I it's just the arm range again. It's one of those things where I've seen it a couple of times in Toledo where he can sometimes look like he barely can hit it, barely hit the cutoff man so i, I don't I don't know what the Tigers have planned in mind for him as far as the arms go, so Gibson long was. To me, one of the biggest, the fact is K per nine went up from just under eight to 10 in just over a year. And he basically took a couple starts off. And when he talked to us about what he was able to do and work on his pitches and and what the Tigers had planned from the beginning of the year, the seed of the evolution of a guy who was really, to be honest, kind of an afterthought after the Michael Fulmer trade, go out there and command the way he did. We saw his second to last start in Toledo where he struck out 12 and he had one hit against Omaha. It was a flare, just a weak flare to left. The command, the ability to go in there that uses his fastball is 92, 93. He's not going to overwhelm you with it, but the fact that he can command his with his cutter and a change, there's a theme going on with the change, by the way, among all these pitchers too. And even Brand Hurler, I know you haven't mentioned him, but the Tigers, were able to say, hey, this is how we want you to throw a change. We want you to throw another pitch with that. And Long ran with it. And he really evolved that pitch. As far as Montero goes, I'm rooting for him because the Tigers have not – we we know with like Fernando Rodney, they've had the reliever luck with in terms of international pitchers. But they haven't had an international starting pitcher of note since – I mean, we're talking – I mean, we're not talking, maybe Felipe Lira. I mean, I, I don't know. It's been a long, long, excuse me, long time since the Tigers had a starter. I mean, they developed international. I'm sorry, I was Jar Jurgens. but in terms of the Latin American market, they just haven't had that success. And Montero, talking to him and talking to what Garco was saying about, they just went and basically translated everything into Spanish, and he just uh, adapted like that. And his stuff is really good. His slider's really good. I hope he sticks around as a starter. That's just, I think he has the ability to do so. I, I think he has enough stuff there, but it depends really on the, how the Tigers see him. But I, I see him as a starter, a guy that gets like a four for fifth starter type. And I could see him getting a call up at some point. It depends on how Detroit wants to use him. But yeah, I'm I'm really high on Montero.
4: I also would like to see Montero stay as a starter, but I probably intrigues me as a relief option. Because he's, his stuff, pure stuff, is not that far behind Jackson Jobs. It's His slider is like 2,800 RPMs. He's got a, like a knuckle curve or a curve that's about 3,000. His changeup isn't as good, but the fastball is pretty darn good. And the, the main issue I saw with him is he just, he just leaves the ball over the heart of the play a little too much. And that includes, you know, sometimes those big sweeping sliders are just hard to locate. And I think he's, he's at the point right now where he's just kind of throwing it for strikes as best he can rather than locating it. But yeah, if you could just unleash him for an inning or two, I mean, he might be throwing 100 with a pretty nasty hook. But it is nice to keep as many guys starting as possible, right? Uh, as you said, Mark, you need, you need uh, a few dozen every year. And he would be one of the first candidates, I would think, to, to come up. I mean, Gibson Long, we think, is probably going to get pushed out given the signings that they've made. And then, you know, they added Flores to the 40-man and Montero, so... Those guys you would think would get a crack, but it's, it's, it's solid depth to have in the upper minors, all these arms. And you know, given the, the amount of leaps we saw last year from Gibson Long and Montero and, and other guys, it wouldn't shock me if uh, Madden or Flores you know, take, take a turn and, and are pushing their way into the big leagues before long. Well, Madden is someone I want to
1: ask both of you guys about because I know you guys have seen him more than I have. But real quick on uh, Justin Henry Malloy, look, yeah, the defense is bad. I like the approach, but the strikeouts concern me. Again, a little inside info. George Lombard actually went to Miami, and he met up with Andy Abanya, Zakil Badu, and Justin Henry Malloy. They all worked on defense. Abania is being a part of that group. That was actually pretty interesting to me. I'm excited to get down to spring training and ask about that. But you know what? Maybe George Lombard can sprinkle some magic on him, and he can become a good outfielder. Who knows? But Ty Madden, tell me about him. Where are
3: you guys at? Is this guy going to be a legit dude for the Tigers, you think? I got a chance to see him in the postseason for Erie over the lat, and I watched his starts ex- extensively from like late August till the end of the season. And something clicked with Madden. I, I know that he had he was very inconsistent early on in the season, and then in July he, I mean he twenty, he had a ERA of 0.92 came back in August. He had like one bad start. We got hit up a little bit, but then after that, he was just he was money. And he his biggest struggle. Was throwing against lefties, and he started getting that. He started executing that very well. And he, if as long as he continues to, uh, the biggest problem with him too was his fastball. Because as Chris pointed out, we, we talked about this on the podcast. Out of college, a lot of teams passed on because of his fastball, but now he he's utilized that better as a weapon. And I remember the first start we saw him this year. Or the first start he helped against Gavin Williams, who ended up going to Cleveland. And he was dominant. We're like, wow, this is a new time Madden. But the issue was still there until the middle of the season. And I think, especially against teams like Richmond and Biginton, when when the big game calls, that kind of like, I don't want to use that cliche, but he really put it in another gear this year. He was a lot more efficient, too. He didn't have these long outings where he had these long innings where he just, he was kind of just, Wanted to finish him with a certain pitch, he couldn't do it. This year he just he was a lot more efficient with his ability, with his command. I think Madden took a big step forward last year from being a guy who who at one point we even admitted that we would consider them reliever to a, a potential starter. And I I think it really bodes well. I think Toledo with him and Flores and hopefully the depends on what they want to do with Ingler have what, probably have one of the better better starting rotations that the Mud Hens have had in a long time.
4: Yeah, it's hard not to like his arm as, as a guy who, you know, he can sit in the mid-90s, get to the upper 90s. He's got all the pitches. He's got a starter's build, but he rots the down on the head. He, he, the struggles against lefties have been his main issue. It's I think his OPS against lefties is, is close to 300 points higher than righties. He's got a cutter. He's got a change-up. He's got a, a slider that'll flash above average at times. It's just... A matter of finding something that he can consistently use to attack lefties. And I don't know. I the one thing that concerned me about last year is, is that walk rate crept up a little bit. It was, you know, he got plenty of strikeouts, but the walk rate crept up over 10%, which is borderline reliever territory, generally speaking. And again, like, like he's got the build, build and arsenal of the starter, but he's another guy that I was, you know, I'd be intrigued. Would he be like a Kyle Funkhauser level reliever? Could he could he be something more than that? You know, Funkhauser had that great sinker. And that's not really what, what man's known for. But I mean, I, I don't I don't mean to like throw all these guys in the bullpen immediately. I'm just saying, I think it could be a legitimate fallback option for him.
0: You know, it's funny you mentioned Kyle Funkhauser because I actually looked him up this week and he's still a minor league free agent after his surgery. He did not re-sign with Texas. So I'd be curious if the Tigers would consider re-signing him and... Letting him throw at Toledo, he had a shocking degree of success when he was healthy for that year and a half, so might not be a terrible spec for them. All right, let's talk about Brand Herder, kind of an under-the-radar prospect. Doesn't have stuff that wows you, throws 90-91, has a great slider, looks kind of like Erod's cutter, and a really good change that he mixes off that slider. Was probably their most dominant pitcher in the playoffs for Erie. You guys have seen him a lot more than we have. What can you tell us about him? Well, I, he led all minor leagues in FIP and last year.
3: And so I, I feel the independent pitching stat that people sometimes overlance. But I know, Mark, you and I discussed his fastball command, fastball shape a little bit. And I see where sometimes where he does kind of tend to overthrow. But I think Hurdler. Did a really good job last year as far as executing going back, he when he t- got a chance to talk to him. Another guy, I mentioned this earlier, that the Tigers were working with on another pitch just to get him another way to just not just be so fastball slider reliant, or excuse me, change up slider reliant with the occasional fastball. I think he's got some good deception. He's got a good extension on him too. But th- what I, what pauses me is what you and I dissected in the DM about if he's going to be able to be consistent with his command. Because also his walk rate kind of crept up last year. He was really good in the playoffs and was able to be clutched on the stretch. And even when they were watching his innings a little bit, but I I really need to see it again at Toledo. If he starts the season at Toledo, can he get that walk rate down just a little bit? To because I you know with the way lefties are these days. Is he a guy who could be like a Tyler Alexander type? I, I don't think so because his stuff seems like it's more like, sir, but he has to, he really has to get that walk rate right down in order to, to adjust. If you could get that adjusted, I think he'll be a difference maker at the next level.
0: Chris, you saw him a few times. What'd you think?
4: Yeah. You know, I, I liked him back when we saw him in West Michigan a couple of years ago, he's, he's just hoss. He looks like an offensive lineman. Yeah. He's, every bit of six, six to And, and it's a funky delivery. Like he, he like cuts himself off and it comes from way on the left side. He's absolutely murder on left-handed hitters. They, they OPS under 500 last year, no home runs. So he's got that to fall back on. You know, he could, he could be a lefty reliever. I think there's enough command there. He, he, he does pretty good job of spotting the fastball to, to inside and outside to righties. And as you said, the changeup is, is a solid pitch and that slider looks above average. I, I, again, I lean Lever, just because it's kind of a funky look, and you you don't see starters like this in the big leagues, really. But um again, another solid depth arm to have. You keep keep him out there starting every fifth, sixth day, and maybe he takes a leap forward. And if not, you, you've got a, a strong lefty to, to fall back on. I, I do kind of think that there could be a fifth starter swingman role there for him, kind of like Tyler Alexander. I so I suppose I don't know if he has Alexander through like twelve pitches. I think Hurders basically three or four right now, but. Or maybe he can develop a couple more. All right. I want to talk about two
0: guys that were kind of disappointing last year that the Tigers spent a lot of money on Christian Santana and Roberto Campos. I think you guys have seen as much of those two guys as anybody. And I know you talked to Ryan Garko on your pod about both of them. And I'm curious if you can share with Evan and I what you've learned, what you've seen, and what you're thinking. So
3: it was funny. We were out at West Michigan. We saw Tony Paul from Detroit News, and he said, he, we were talking about Campos. He's like, oh, he's kind of a butcher out there in the outfield. And we we're like, no, no, he's he's fine. And within a half hour after we said that statement, he made some of the most brutal plays I've seen out there in a while in right field. He, I, I think Campos, what Br- I think the Brady Allen trade really helped West Michigan. But I, I digress. I think Campos struggled defensively last year in the outfield and i i don't know if long term if he's able can be able to handle that position because it's just he makes some really bad reads on the ball he's got a good arm he's got good speed but the way he sees the ball it comes across on the ball on the outfield is just it's 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 some of the it's not it's i'm not trying to this guy so much, but it, it's brutal. It's brutal. I'm sorry. It is. It is absolute brutal when you see a guy coming in and then going all the way back. He got burned a couple times last year, and it was just cringeworthy. And I and as far as Christian Santana goes, I think it's a mental thing with him because you see the bad ball data and you go, "Oh, all right. Well, there's something there." But the problem is, is that it's the strikeouts are way too high, and I think he's just maybe he's overthinking it a little bit, but. You get encouraged by the walk rate, but again, that's also the level he's at. I'm not I'm not concerned about like, you know, great, good for you. You're walking at a high rate at a uh, single A. It's more or less like, hey, it's mental. It's all mental. And I really think it's one of those things where it's it's a mental thing with him. And I think that Santana defensively is all right, but until he figures it out at the play, I think it's I don't, I don't know, maybe he expected to be at West Michigan last year. Well, I had a chance to talk to him in Lakeland last year, and he was really heading into the season very confident about its abilities. And so, yeah, I'm not sure what, what, what happened with him there.
1: Okay, Chris, so I need you to tell me, right? So Roberto Campos is another DH, if I'm not mistaken. Is a guy ever going to hit bombs, though? Like, is he going to be able to be a 20-plus homer dude, or is that not happening? Because, look, I think people can live with bad defense and maybe a DH – or, or a poor corner outfielder, as I mentioned, the Tigers seemingly have a surplus of, if they hit jacks and, and they go yard,
4: is Campos going to do that for us or no? I mean, that's the million-dollar question, right? The $3 million question? I don't know However, he got. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, he's 20. I'll give him time on the defense. Maybe they'll get him to pass the ball. He hits the ball really hard. He always has. And, you know, I think by the end of May last year, we had bumped him all the way up. We, we updated our rankings last year, and he was having a great start. And we bumped him up really high. And then I think they stopped throwing him fastballs. And he's one of those guys who can make contact with just about anything, even if he shouldn't. And so I think he really kind of got in his own head. And then the swings and misses started coming up. The The curveballs and the changeups were getting him. But you, you see him on the right day. And I, I bring this story up multiple times. Jacob Mizorowski, who's probably the hardest-throwing pitcher in the minor leagues, if if not one of you know the top three or four, was pitching against the Whitecaps. And Kalpos got ahead of him 2-0. And he took a 97, maybe 99 mile an hour fastball from Mizroski and laced it over the third baseman's head. for That was their first hit of the game. Nobody could touch him. And Campos, he can, he can, you know, square up a bullet. But if you put a wrinkle on it, I don't know. It, it's tough. And so he's got to get, I mean, both of these guys are swing plane guys. That's what Garko said. He's got to get, Santana's got to get a swing plane down. And Campos needs to get his up. And, and I'm not smart enough to know how you do that. We, we, when we talked to Garko, he said that Kenny Graham, got Justice Bigby to do that a little bit. And, and compost's batted ball profile is not that different from Justice Bigby. It's it's kind of the similar amount of hard round balls, just not quite as much to the opposite field. But So I, I think there's a chance, but yeah, I, I wouldn't put money on it. I'll say that.
1: No, that's good to know. That's really good info, actually. last player we're going to ask you about is Dylan Dingler because that's a guy who just got added to the 40-man roster. Obviously, the Tigers now have three catchers on the 40-man. Donnie Sands has bounced off. Dylan Dingler's on. He's kind of that next catcher that's looking to break through. I have one interesting data point that I want to mention, but I really want to get you guys' take. So he was extremely passive early in counts last season, swinging at just 52.8% of pitches inside the strike zone with fewer than two strikes. So he's literally just not swinging until he gets to two strikes, which seemed to be a problem. And you know, when I talked to him, he talked about kind of trying to implement more of a selective, aggressive approach understanding what pitches he does damage on and I love the quote I have to read it it's quote it's like when you see Mike Trout swinging there are hardly any times where you see him give a half swing at a ball he doesn't want to swing at he waits for it to get into his zone and then he takes a swing Colt Keith is the same way it's a very repeatable swing and he does a lot of damage because he gets his swing off on pitches that he wants to swing at end quote so obviously Dingler there is comparing Mike Trout and Colt Keith but he's also talking about the fact that he wants to be more selective, aggressive, nobody wants to hunt, and then go hunt it. Is that all that he needs to do on offense at this point to to really break through and give you guys confidence that he's going to be
3: good at the highest level? Or is there maybe more to it than that? And then also, what do you think about him defensively? Just looking at the bad ball data down in Toledo, I mean, he was hitting, the hard hate rate was about 47%, which is above the league average of 36 on triple AAA. And I think when he does get a hold of one, he really does, and and I I personally think that if he can get that selectiveness and avoid getting swinging those sliders away, like the biggest thing teams were just doing was just throwing just nasty stuff away and he just couldn't resist. If he becomes more selective, I think there's, he's such a good athlete and it's such a really, to me, at least even shows really good speed for his catcher. I think once he gets that down, I, I really think it could be a difference maker because the defensively he's one of the, The back pick master. I mean, we—I kid you not. Every time we saw him live, we see him at least do one or two back picks, right, Chris? I mean, it was pretty much on a regular basis. So many attempts. Yeah, and the the pop times there too, and the difference between the the biggest thing, Evan, that I could tell you that how much of a difference maker was defensively when he came back to Erie, and then Josh Crouch got sent back down to West Michigan at that time. Erie had one of the worst ERAs in the Eastern League. And when he came back up, it was a 9 day difference. And they, Gabe Alvarez speaks highly of him being an effective leader, but it was the pitchers were basically trusting him. And he was, it was an instant change. And Erie started winning. And there's no knock on Josh Crouch or anything. But that's how much I think Dingler can make a difference in and pitching staff there was a lot of new pitchers in erie last year and there's a lot of veterans and he was able to just go in there in a locker room and instantly change it as soon as he was healthy
4: yeah you know the physical tools with dingler are, are great they've always been great uh, i think he's he's excels at everything on defense with the exception of maybe you know blocking balls is is maybe average and yeah you talked about you know, the when he hits the ball he hits it hard the power's there we've just we've seen him kind of struggle at erie for multiple years now and it's interesting reading that article you wrote, Evan, because it, it was kind of him putting into words, we just, we don't have the data, but we would watch him and go, it just seems like he's caught in between, like, like he'll take a breaking ball right down the middle because he was looking for a fastball and then swing right through a fastball because he was looking for a breaking ball. It just, it always felt like he was just not quite there. And so when I mean, we've seen a couple games of him, you know, go over three with three strikeouts over four with four strikeouts. And, and it's to the point where I like, I'm not entirely sure that the hitting ability is ever going to get there. I think right now he's kind of a jake rogers light if you will in terms of the hitting ability you know jake rogers isn't known for hitting for average but i i don't think you, know, you can compare their stats in in the minors and jake rogers was about the same except he hit for higher average in the minors than dingler is so i i don't know i mean i, I think he's got a chance to be a very strong backup catcher for a long time and it's i mean the hitting is the big question for me because I, I, it's got multiple years now of him not really making those adjustments. So I, I don't know if I can expect to see him do that in AAA and in the majors. Dingler's got a lot of skills. And, you know, I, I think I tweeted
0: something this week where really, really great catchers, they either are great really young, say 22 or less, or it's pretty common that catchers don't really mature to 27 or 28. And I'm kind of hoping that Dingler is in that last class because. He, for sure has the athleticism and the skill makeup. It's just a matter of refining it and getting a little more consistent. All right, boys, please share each of you where you, they can find you on YouTube and Twitter and where they can find Tyner, Tiger Minor League Report in the pod.: So you can
3: find us on YouTube at Tiger's Minor League Report and on Twitter at Tiger's ML Report. You can also find us, our pods. You can find the Tiger Minor Report on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And we also have the Motor City Metrics Podcast, which is Chris and I have been on doing the show now for, since 2016. And different variation names, of course. And you can find that at Motor City Metrics. And we also have MCM Baseball Pod on Twitter. And we also have a GoFundMe, too, that we'll, we have to share the link. We're trying to get some extra funds. Because we do this a lot of love, but we also want to make sure that we're providing as much content out there. So if you could donate a few bucks to help us out, that'd be greatly appreciated. And there's a page that's a part of a GoFundMe link so we can share the link. And we also have a Patreon, too, that I admittedly been slacking a little bit. Now, season putting some extra content out there, but that's also
0: a Tiger of report as well. Where are we finding you, Chris?
4: I uh, have yeah, Chris Brown, 0914 on, on Twitter, but I don't tweet that much. Just go to the other stuff. All
0: right, boys. You know, you know how much I love you. It's been an honor to have you on. I'm sure we'll have you on again, have you on again during the season. And pay attention to your YouTube page once the year starts. I know Rod's going to try to go down for some spring training. I appreciate you taking some time tonight. We'll catch you down the road. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot to the Tiger Minor League Report guys. We'll be back in a minute. So that was a lot of fun. Covered a lot of players. Hopefully, plugged into quite a few of the Tiger minor leaguers. Didn't even really cover. We're both Baseball America and BP are ranking these players. Jackson Job number two on bo- number two pitcher in all of the prospects lists uh, after Paul Skeens this year. So very well thought of in both lists. Cole Keith in the top twenty-five in both. So. Pretty exciting stuff, Tiger minor leaguers. Those boys do a great job. So let's touch uh, real quickly before we get out of here. Casey Mize resolved his arbitration dispute. Uh, You and I got a slight laugh out of that. It really didn't need to go that far, and it was kind of a reflection of maybe some better, more diplomatic thinking on both parties' parts to resolve it. Share with me what your thoughts are. I know you have a thought about the option part of it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the club option is getting picked up. That's
1: just my take on it. But basically, the Tigers and Casey Mize avoided arbitration hearing by agreeing to a one-year k contract for the 2024 season that includes a club option for the 2025 season. The club option is worth $3.1 million. The question is going to be, hey, look, is Casey Mize even going to be able to you know, pitch enough innings to get up to 3.1 million in ARB next year. So basically, what happens is the Tigers are going to either a pick up the club option and pay Casey Mize 3.1 million dollars, or they decline the club option. Casey Mize gets a 10k buyout, and then he remains arbitration eligible, so he just goes through the arbitration cycle once again. So he's guaranteed to get 840k. But again, the Tigers could pick up the 3.1 million dollar club option. The question is, are they going to do it? I'm not so certain that's gonna happen. This is a guy who's, you know, hasn't been healthy and hasn't pitched for the Tigers since April of 2022. He's coming back from elbow surgery and back surgery. And is he even going to be able to get beyond 150 innings? I think is a really fair question to ask. So if he doesn't get up past 150 innings, and if those 150 innings aren't like elite, elite dominant, I don't know if he's even going to get, you know, 3.1 million, you know, through the ARB process anyway. So I would expect them to decline the option at that point. But by offering the club option, it allows the Tigers to keep intact their status as a file and trial club under Scott Harris. File and trial strategy basically means the Tigers won't have further discussions about a one-year contract if the club and the player don't come to an agreement by the deadline to exchange salary figures. So the Tigers and Casey Mize, they couldn't agree. There weren't going to be any more contract discussions about a strict one-year deal. So they basically made it, you know, it's a potential two-year deal, I guess, but it's really just a one-year deal with a, a club option on there. So we'll see what happens with it. I'm happy it's over. It's probably good for both sides. I'm excited to get to spring training and talk to Casey Mize about baseball and baseball only.
0: Well, somebody smart enough to tell the powers that be to make this go away because it was a terrible look, and I'm glad they addressed it quickly. That's all I have to say about it. You did an interesting article, I think, yesterday, if not today, about a kid who the Tigers are very, very, very connected to in the international market for 2025. Had a chance to watch some videos of him swinging. Looked like Julio Rodriguez really had some bat speed. Not a small guy either, but super athletic looking. Why don't you tell us about him? Yeah, so just to clarify,
1: the story has nothing to do with Chris Rodriguez, but within the story, there is a little bit about Chris Rodriguez. I mean, the story obviously goes into detail about you know the Tigers and their you know results in the international market, which haven't been great. But then you know you hear about this Chris Rodriguez kid. I did some digging. I, I found out kind of what the you know signing bonus is looking like. It's going to be over three million dollars. Um, it sounds like he's going to be you know potentially a top three player in the twenty twenty five class. You know, among all international players, you know, definitely is going to be top ten. Maybe top five, and I've told, you know, hey, you yep. know, watch out. Like this guy could be top three. When I first saw him, I said, Julio Rodriguez, that name clicked for me. Mark, when you saw the video that I tweeted out for the first time, you said it looks like a righty Riley Green with that swing. Those were our kind of our first two evaluations. Other people have talked about, you know, this looks like an A-rod. Some people have said, you know, it looks like this big name, that big name. But there's reason to get excited because he looks really good. He's 15-year-old right now from the Dominican Republic. Tigers are expected to sign him for north of a $3 million bonus in January 2025. I heard that from a couple different sources, so I feel pretty good about that. Can't officially sign, but there's an agreement in place. He's 6'3". I saw a photo of him standing next to Nomar Mazzara. Nomar Mazzara is 6'4", which confirms that this kid is definitely 6'3". And yeah, the swing is sweet from the right side. Like, I'm very excited to... Learn a little bit more about him as time goes on. He turns 16 soon, so again, it's all super early and it's kind of throwing darts at the wall. But when you see the swing, and Mark, you saw it too. I tweeted the video; it's out there on my Twitter account. I mean, that that that's a swing. That that's a baseball
0: swing. It was tasty. It was it was it was a sweet looking swing. All right, it's been a hell of a week. I cannot believe the Lions are going to the NFC title game. We had a lot of fun. Uh, A lot of info on the pods. Uh, You can figure out where you can watch a baseball game this summer. You can listen to who's going to be a good prospect. I'd like to thank our executive producer, Kirk Crawford and Anjanette Delgado. I'd like to thank the free press editor, Nicole Avery Nichols, our producer, as always, who cleans up our mess. Uh, So good. He's so good. Robin Chan. My grandson, Braden Michael Gorash, for my partner, Evan Petzold. I say peace.